0: you're not ready to worship this morning your wood is wet Amen. before we get into God's word this morning let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer father thank you you are holy Lord, that line just radiates with me awestruck Lord, there are many things that I have seen in this world that have caused me to be awestruck. Yeah. Yeah. Several things in nature. But Lord, just think that one day we're going to be in your presence and we'll really understand what it means to be awestruck. For Lord, the creation is just the tip of your finger. What you do is outstanding. It's absolutely amazing. The most precious gift we have is not life, but it is eternal life, because of the price you were willing to pay, to pay for our sins on that cross so long ago. Father, we should be awestruck by your love and your mercy and your grace. Amen. God, we just ask that you be with us today as we talk about returning to the sacred, understanding what it is that you require of us, in particular, when it comes to worship. God, that we are to give you all that you deserve, for you are worthy. And I pray today that you'll speak to our hearts and draw us close to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bibles, open up to 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're continuing our series on why revival tarries. And today we're talking specifically about returning to the sacred. Returning to the sacred. Now, let's think about what that means. Oftentimes people think that there are certain things that have to change in order to return to the sacred. And one of those things is they oftentimes think that clothing is a part of that. You know, that we got to wear the right thing. That when you come into church, I, how many of you remember the day when men came in suits and ladies came in dresses? And so all of a sudden we go back to that idea that, man, if we're going to return to the sacred, then we gotta, we got to change the way we dress. But can I ask you a question? Is God really concerned with whether you come in, in a suit or a t-shirt? No, He's not. No, he's not. You know, it's oftentimes we think, we, we wonder, we imagine, we have this idea that all of a sudden if we just all dress the same, that then God's presence would come down among us. But clothing doesn't have anything to do with that. The only thing it requires in Scripture is that we dress modestly, modestly. Well, what about music? You know, we, we get to that idea that if we're going to return to the sacred, then we got to go back to old school music, right, where we just play hymns and everybody picks up a hymn book and we got to hold it in our hands because the screens just aren't good enough right and so we got to return to the sacred we got to pick up the book we got to sing it right out of the hymn but man if we were going to go old school let's go back to gregorian chants then right we don't sing hymns because those are contemporary so we go back to gregorian chants well actually those might even be a little too contemporary so let's go back to where we just sing psalms if we want to go back to sacred music right You see, oftentimes we think that it all attends on the music. But to be honest with you, as long as the music is God-honoring, and I don't know about you, but this morning that was pretty God-honoring. That's pretty amazing if you ask me. So it's not about the music. Well, what about attitude? Attitude, a lot of times, you know, we can go back to the old school attitude, right? Where we judge everybody. When they walk in the door, well, they're not as righteous as I am. i'm I'm holy and they're wrong you know we could go back how many of you remember church like that do you remember church like that where everybody just kind of gave you that glaring stare like who do you think you are and what are you doing here you know and you thought to yourself why am i here right why am i here you know, that's the old school attitude. I mean, I grew up in a church like that. Man, you just turn your nose up at people. Man, I'd, I'd much rather go around and shake hands with everybody, talk to everybody, get to know everybody. So it's, it's not about returning the sacred in that sense. Let's listen to what the word sacred means. It means connected with God or dedicated to a religious purpose. Or here's another one, dedicated or set apart for the service of worship. So what does God desire in order for us to return to the sacred? Number one, he requires our hearts God is more concerned with what's on the inside than what's on the outside. God, God isn't concerned that you come in, dressed, in, in the, dressed to the nines and all decked out and everything. God is, is more concerned with whether your heart's ready to serve Him. Whether your heart's ready to worship Him and glorify His name. God's more concerned about the heart making sure that you got things right in your life. Man, that's what the altar's for, right? It's going ahead and just throwing it all on the altar and giving it over to God and making sure that we're right with God. Even in the middle of worship, people are coming up and making sure we're right with God, that we want to be able to worship and glorify His name. So it's about having a heart. It's about being selfless. It's about being selfless. In other words, when we come into church, we don't sit back and go, well, that's not my kind of music. I didn't know we were singing to you in the first place. Right? I didn't know we were, I didn't know your name was in those songs, right? You know, it's about being selfless, and guess what? That means if somebody sits in your pew, change seats. Right? That's your name's not on there. My name's not on there. Nobody's name's on there. That's a good thing, right? We had a lady one time, and that's what she did. She she walked up this couple, and a brand new couple just came into church and they said, You're sitting in my seat. You know what I told the couple they should have said? I told them they should have looked around, said, I don't see your name, so find another one. (laughs) Talking about church fights, right? (laughs) Anyways, it's about being selfless. It's about recognizing that, guess what? Church isn't about us. It's about the one we come to serve and glorify. That's returning to the sacred. It's also about love and devotion. Why are you here this morning? Let me be honest with you. How many of you have those mornings where somebody is dragging you out of the bed to get to church? Wives, how many of you have to drag your husbands to church sometimes? Husbands, how many times have you had to drag your wives to church? How many of us have to drag our kids to church? You know? It's about love and devotion. It's about that psalm. It says, Man, I was glad when they said, let us go into the house of the Lord. Man, when you wake up in the morning on Sunday, you ought to be, man, it's exciting because I get to go be in the presence of God. That's about having a sacred heart that is ready to love and devote ourselves to God. And that's about being filled with the Spirit. Yes, I just said it, filled with the Spirit. It's about allowing the Holy Spirit to work in and through our lives. That's how we return to the sacred, is allowing the Holy Spirit to transform and change us throughout the service. Even while we're singing, God can speak to you and move in your heart and challenge you and transform you. Not just the message, but even in the midst of the words of songs, God is speaking to us. Man, when we want to return to the sacred, there's several things that we need to be doing. And it has nothing to do with what we often think, but it has everything to do with putting our hearts in tune with God. So this morning, we're going to look at three stages in returning to the sacred. It's very important for us to get this. First, we want to look at David's ambition. Look with me in verses 1 through 5. It says, again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab and was in Gibeah. And Uzzah and Eo, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Eo went before the ark, and David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries, on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. Now look at David's desire. His desire is to move this piece of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant. What was so important about this Ark? It was a box, right? It was a box that was built back in the time of Moses, but it was built for a specific Purpose. There were several things that went into the Ark of the Covenant. At first, the Ten Commandments that God had chipped out on stone, he placed it in the Ark of the Covenant. A couple things were later added to the Ark of the Covenant. There was a bowl of manna that had been collected after the people of Israel left the desert and they collected that and they put it into the Ark of the Covenant as well. There was also the rod of Aaron that had budded showing his priesthood would come through him and therefore that also was placed inside of the Ark of the Covenant. But what was so important about this box was there was actually a lid that was placed on top of it. And this lid was something that was extremely unique in its texture, in the way it looked, and what it also represented. In Exodus 25, beginning of verse 17, here we read about the lid that was placed on the Ark of the Covenant. It says, And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold, of beaten work shalt thou make, them and the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on the, uh, one end, and the other cherub on the other end. Even of the mercy seat shall ye make of the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And their faces shall look one to another toward the mercy seat, shall the faces of the cherubims be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I'll meet with thee, and I'll commune with thee, and above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are in the ark of the testimony of all which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. So you've got this box, and then they put this lid on it, and on top of it is called a mercy seat. It's a throne chair. And that throne chair would represent the presence of God, that God was seated on the throne. Now understand, it wasn't that God was actually seated on that throne, because God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times. But there was this mercy seat that was placed on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Then there were two cherubims, or angels, and they had their wings spread out to cover the mercy seat. Now, why would they cover the mercy seat? Because if we look at the holiness and the righteousness and the presence of God, he'll strike us dead. And so they were covering the very holiness of God so that man could enter in. Now, here's the thing. The priest would enter into the place where the Ark of the Covenant was one time a year to make a sacrifice to God. A sacrifice that would cover over their sins for the entire year. A sacrifice that God would place upon them so that he would forgive them at representation of what Jesus Christ would do in the future. So the Ark of the Covenant was here, this mercy seat, the angels covering over it, and it represented the presence of God. But not only did it represent the presence of God, it represented where God would speak to them. He says in verse 22, and I will commune with thee. In other words, God would speak to the people of Israel. In fact, Moses spoke to God many a time, and he would come out and his face would be glowing with a Shekinah glory. And so he would cover himself up so they wouldn't see it fade. But God showed up in a mighty, mighty way. So the Ark of the Covenant was a representation of God's presence and God's speech. It also represented God's guidance for the people of Israel. In the book of Numbers chapter 10, In verse 33, it says, And they departed from the mount of the Lord three days' journey. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them in the three days' journey to search out a resting place for them. Isn't it amazing that the ark of the covenant was the first thing that went out? It was the thing that they followed. It was they were following God's presence God's presence was with them, guiding them, directing them, showing them where to go. In fact, when they get to the Jordan River, what does God tell them? God says, tell the priest to step into the river. As soon as they stepped in with the Ark of the Covenant, what happened? The waters parted just like the Red Sea did, and they were able to walk through on dry ground. God's presence and guidance were with him. Not only did it represent his presence and his guidance, it also represented his protection You think about it. They carried the Ark of the Covenant with them when they went into battle. In Joshua chapter 6, when they were surrounding Jericho and walking around it, the Ark of the Covenant went with them. It was showing God's protection over his people. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, they had it brought in there for a battle. They ended up losing because they trusted in a box instead of what the box represented. Instead of trusting in God's presence, instead of trusting in God's protection, they trusted in a box, and that was a problem. They had lost the idea of the sacred. They forgot what it represented. But David knew exactly what it represented. It represented God's presence, God's protection, God's guidance, God's wisdom, God's deliverance, God's love, God's mercy, God's grace, God's protection all over the people of Israel. And so he said, "We want this in the capital city." So that was David's desire was to bring it with him. But verse three shows us his mistake. It says, and they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. You say, well, what was the mistake? Where was the error? The error is very simple. Because God had dedicated the ark of the covenant to be brought about one way. In fact, the box was, had four little rings on the side, two in the front and two in the back, for the poles to be put through the rings, and they would be carried on the shoulders of four Levites. Four Levites were the only ones allowed to carry the Ark of the Covenant on those poles. Well, where in the world did David get the idea of the cart? Well, he got it. If you go back to 1 Samuel, he got it from the Philistines. When the Philistines had defeated the people of Israel, what did they do? They took the Ark of Covenant. They took it with them. Now, the problem was they took it into one city, and all of a sudden they began to have plagues and rats. Well, that city didn't want it, so they sent it to the next Philistine city. Guess what happened in that city? Plagues and rats. Plagues and rats. So they sent it to a third city. And by the time it got to the third city, they're going, don't bring it here. We don't want it. We already seen what's going on. And so they ended up sending back five tumors and five golden rats to appease the God of Israel. Well, they sent it back on what? On a cart. On a cart. With a brand new milk cow, with a milk cow that had a calf, and see if it would be carried on to the Lord. See if it carried back to the city, to the people of Israel. And it happened. So David got it from the Philistines. David was so excited that he didn't think to follow God's guidance in bringing it back. David didn't think about being obedient to God. And oftentimes, there's the issue. We forget to return to the sacred by doing it God's way, not our way. That was the problem for David. He did it his way. And it says, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab. Out of the house of Abinadab, it goes all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 1. It had been in that house, we don't know, for at least 20 years or longer. And God had blessed that house because his presence was there with them. But the problem we're gonna see is because of what took place in that house, there's a huge mistake that's made just a little bit later on. But you look at verse 5 and you say, well, they celebrated. This is in David, and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments, wood, of fur, even of harps, and on psalteries, and on timbrels, and on cornets, and on cymbals. Isn't that amazing? You you would think that, man, we we can cover up our mistakes if we just worship God. Many people think that same thing. They come into church and they say, well, as long as I worship God, God doesn't care if I repent. You're wrong. You're wrong. You can worship God all you want, but if you're still living in sin, guess what? He does not accept your worship. You want to know when he'll accept your worship? When you repent. The moment you repent, he'll forgive you, he'll cleanse you, he'll let it go, and you can move forward. But you've got to get right with God before you can truly worship God. We can't just give God what we want. We can't say, well, God, I'm, I'm going to give you a portion of my day. I'm going to give you a portion of my week. That's the problem. A lot of times Christians, they want to give God Sunday, but Monday through Saturday is theirs. God deserves every day of the week. God deserves every moment of our day. It needs to be all about him in our lives. If you don't think that's true, then just see what happens when you stand before him in judgment. Just see what happens. You see, there's some people the Bible talks about might get in by the skin of their teeth. It's only by the grace of God that we get in anyways. But man, I'm going to tell you what. I long to hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant. But we can't do it our way. We got to do it God's way. Let's look at God's sacred character in verses 6 and 7. It says, And when they came to Nishan's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God, and he took hold of it for the oxen and shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. Whew. What a lesson to learn, God's sacred character, right? You'd think to yourself, well, didn't he do the right thing? I mean, the cart started to go over, the Ark of the Covenant was coming off. What if the lid had popped off, and then all of a sudden the Ten Commandments came out, and the rod came out, and the manna came out, and then what would they do? Because now it's, it's messed up. So this guy, all he did was he put his hand out, and he steadied it, and he stopped it from falling over. And so, well, let me just tell you what he did. He probably just saved every life that was there, except his own. He said, well, he was just steadying it. Well, here's the problem. He touched it. He touched it. He touched what represented the presence of God, and when unholiness touches holiness, it has to evaporate. It's gone. I mean, you look at this. He says, "When they came, says Uzzah, put forth his hand to the ark of God. Why would he think that he could touch it? Why would he think that he could even get close to it? Well, the problem was, is familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt." you got to remember, he was one of the sons of Abinadab, and so it had been in their house for over 20 years. There's no telling how oftentimes they just ran by it and didn't think anything of it. Familiarity breeds contempt, and let me tell you something, that happens in the church today. We can become so familiar with God, and we can begin to give God all these different titles, and we begin to think about God as our friend and forget, and we also think about God and His mercy and His grace, and those are all good things, but oftentimes we forget that our God is holy and just and perfect as well. We begin to loosen up on it. When we become familiar, we fail to give God the glory and the honor that's due His name. And oftentimes we think, well, as long as I'm here, I'm good. That's not true. As long as your heart is here and you're ready to worship God, then you're good. good. Then you're good. good. But look at this in verse 7. It says, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error. You know what the word error actually means in the Hebrew? Irreverence. Irreverence. How was he irreverent? He touched what represented the presence of God. Man, if you go over to 1 Samuel chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, guess what they did in that town? They decided to open the Ark of the Covenant up. They wanted to look inside. God killed over 50,000 of them when they did that. Killed them dead. They thought they could look into the presence of God, and God smote them in 1 Samuel 6 took their lives from them. You'd say, do you think God is like that today? Well, let's just take a few examples. How about Moses in Numbers chapter 20? Moses was a godly man. Moses was the most humble man. What did he do? God told him to speak to the rock. What did Moses do? He struck it. And when he struck it, yeah, the water came out, but the problem was is God, what, told him, you'll not enter into the promised land now. You'd say, well, he just messed up one time. Yeah, that's exactly right. He messed up one time, and God said, you won't go in now. God explained to him exactly why. Well, how about Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 13? Saul was just ready to go into battle. Saul knew that the most important thing he needed to do was make a sacrifice to God before he went into battle. Well, kings couldn't make sacrifices. They had to have a priest. So he was supposed to wait seven days for Samuel to get there. Well, the time's winding down. People start to leave his army. He starts to worry about whether he can win the battle. So what does Saul do? Saul brings in the the animal, and he sacrifices himself. He takes on the role of a priest. And because he did that, what did God say? I've taken your kingdom from you. It's no longer yours. Why? You would say, well, he was trying to do the right thing. Can I tell you something? The ends do not always justify the means. They don't. How about Ananias and Sapphira? Let's go to New Testament because a lot of people say, "Oh, well, that's just Old Testament." Well, let's go to the New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter five. What did they do? They lied, right? I mean, God's not going to be upset with a little lie, is he? Well, they lied. You say, "Well, then God struck them down, both of them, killed both husband and wife." What for? They lied. That, that's all they did. How, how many of you lie? Anybody here lie? You're lying right now. You won't raise your hands. (laughs) But you think about it. And in essence, the fire lighting, God struck him down. A lot of people say, well, why did he do that? Because it was the early church, and he wanted the early church to understand there needs to be purity in the church. He didn't want to mess around. The moment the first sin happened in the church, he took care of it, and I guarantee you everybody straightened up at that point. Could you imagine if God started striking us down for the wrongs that we did? You think people might straighten up? Man, I remember when my dad started bringing out his belt and he started tearing my brother up. I knew it was time to stop. You know? I knew then it was, it was over. I didn't want one of them. But that's the thing. Oftentimes we look at God and we say, oh, well, God is so merciful and God is so gracious and God is so loving. And yes, he is all of those. But my God is also just and he's perfect and he's righteous. And so he requires that of us. We've got to get back to the sacred. Man, I think about this in the book of Exodus, chapter 24, when Moses was going to enter into the presence of God. Listen, this is in the Lord, in Exodus 24, beginning verse 12. And the Lord said unto Moses, Come up to me into the mount and be there, and I'll give thee tables of stone and a law and commandments which I've written, that thou mayest teach them. And Moses rose up, and his minister Joshua and Moses went up into the mount of God, and he said unto the elders, Tarry ye here for us until we come again unto you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. If any man have any matters to do, let him come unto them. And Moses went up into the mount, and a cloud covered the mount. And the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. And Moses went into the midst of the cloud and got him up into the mount. And Moses was in the mount forty days and forty nights. Could you imagine if we realized and recognized that we were entering into the presence of God? You know, one wise old saint used to say, he said, I wonder how many people still bow before they enter into the sanctuary because they recognize whose presence they're going into. Could you imagine... What might be different if we thought the moment we walked through those doors that God was going to be here? Can you imagine the change of our conversation, the change of our attitudes, the change of our worship, the change of everything that would go on in this church if we really believed God was going to show up? You know, when God did show up during the time of Solomon and he came down upon the the temple in a great cloud, you know what they did? They ran. Can I tell you, you would have two options if God truly showed up? One, you would either run out of here as quick as you could, or two, you'd just fall on your face and beg that God didn't take your life. That's it. But that's what would happen if God's presence showed up. But when are we going to believe that God wants to show up in such a way? I love Psalm chapter 15. Here's what it tells us. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, how many of you be in trouble there? Nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. Well, that one verse right there hit home. In whose eyes a vile person is contemned, and he honors them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. He that putteth out his money to usury nor taketh reward against the innocent, he that doth these things shall never be moved. Do you see what it will cost you to be in the presence of God? It'll cost you all your sin. It'll cost you all your sin. But, man, I'm going to tell you when you come into the presence of God, it'll be worth it. I think about Moses' words Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. You you know Moses understood what that meant for him if God really showed up. You realize God answered that prayer for Moses about 1,500 years later? He said, well, what do you mean? You remember when Jesus took him up on the Mount of Transfiguration? Who was there? And Moses got to see the glory of God. 1,500 years and his prayer was answered. His request. Lastly, let's look at David's reaction, beginning in verse 8. We see he becomes angry. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. Isn't that the natural reaction for us as Christians? First thing we want to do is get mad at God. David gets mad. He's upset. How could you kill this guy? I mean, he was helping me move the Ark of the Covenant. He was helping me do what you had called me to do. He was, he was helping, and he just, he saved everybody's life from keeping it from falling over. God, why? Why would you kill him? But I'm going to tell you, the anger that he had towards God probably turned to anger on himself because he knew he messed up. You see, here's what you got to realize. God never messes up. He never messes up. It's us. We're the ones that mess up our relationship with God often. We're the ones that fail often. And if you want to get angry with somebody, get angry with yourself. Because I believe that's exactly where David's anger turned to. He recognized his mistake. He called the place Perez Uzzah, which simply means outburst against Uzza. That would forever be reminded, a reminder to him of his own mistake. But after he got angry, he became fearful. Look at verse 9. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And said, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David, but David carried it aside into the house of Obed Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed Edom and all his household. It says David was afraid of the Lord that day. Can I tell you something? If we feared God, it would change the way we really live. If you really believed, that God went everywhere that you went and saw everything that you did, would it change what you do? I hope so. Because He does. He sees it all. And to think that if we could just go over here in this dark corner, well, if, if you need to just read Psalm 139, you'll see there's nowhere you can go to escape His presence. Nowhere. Well, what's the point? The point is simply this. We ought to fear God. You know, here's the thing. I I feared my daddy. Anybody fear their daddy growing up? My daddy could shoot me a look at the kitchen table, and I knew I better straighten up immediately, or I was going to get smacked in the back of the head or a belt. But I did. I feared my daddy. But I feared him when I did wrong, not when I did right. I never feared him when I made good grades. I never feared him when I played well. I never feared him when I obeyed him. I never feared him when I did the work he asked me to do. The only time I ever really feared him was when I did wrong because that and that alone was when I'd be punished. You see, I have a reverence for God, and I understand the very truth of this, that as long as I'm living for him and serving him and doing right by him, and as long as I'm staying away from sin, when I am living in that manner, I understand God's not going to discipline me. But I also know that the moment that I fail, the moment that I mess up, the moment that I make a mistake, God will discipline me. You say, well, how do you know that? Hebrews chapter 12 tells me that he's going to discipline his children. So if you've not been disciplined by God, you might want to ask yourself whether you're really his. Because would, he would never discipline somebody that's not his. Get that? Just as I can't go into Walmart and discipline the kids going through the checkout line that I want to sometimes. But he feared. He feared. But finally, we see that reverence brought out in verse 12. It says, And it was told King David, saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of Obed-Edom, and all that pertaineth unto him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the house of David with gladness, into the city of David with gladness. And it was so that when they that bear the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting with the sound of the trumpet. And as the ark of the Lord came to the city of David, Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings for the Lord. And as soon as David had made an end of the offering, Burnt offerings and peace offerings. He blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he dealt among all the people, even all among the whole multitude of Israel, as well as to the women as men, to everyone a cake of bread and a good piece of flesh and a flagon of wine. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. And a celebration. A celebration that God's presence had entered into the city. Now, I love this. It said that David did what? He danced. Oh, did you just hear a pin drop in the Baptist heart? I, you know, my wife grew up in an independent Baptist church, and her pastor used to say, I pray A praying knee and a dancing foot don't grow on the same leg. And I just asked him one day when he said that in front of me, I said, Well, what about King David? I never heard him make that comment again. Never. Now, understand, the dance is not like what you might think. You know, it's not clubbing, right? He didn't do the backpack, you know, or any of that stuff. But it's actually whirling. That's actually what the word means. Whirling. He he jumped up. He was excited. He was ecstatic. He was thrilled that God's presence was coming in to the house and to the city of David. He was thrilled. He was moved in such a mighty way. It was such a beautiful portrayal of praise and worship unto God. And he celebrated and he was excited. You know what's interesting? It was Somebody got mad at him, his own wife. Now, how many of you men, the moment your wife gets mad at you and gives you that look, you straighten up? Anybody? I've seen some of you guys, man, when you're... right, David's wife gave him the look. But what did David do when she gave him the look? He ignored it. She's later going to get on to him and she's going to rebuke him and she's going to say, you look like a fool in front of everybody. And you know what David says? David says this. I will look like a fool and keep looking like a fool if I'm glorifying God. You see, when we come into the presence of the sacred, we don't care about what anybody else thinks. All we care about is what God thinks. perfect example of being reverent is going all the way back to Genesis chapter 4 and looking at the second sin that was ever committed. In Genesis 4, beginning in verse 1, it says, And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived, and bare Cain, and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock, and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. In other words, Cain became angry. He ever... Man, a lot of people look at that and they say, well, you know, I don't, I don't understand why God got mad at Cain and why he accepted Abel. And a lot of people say, well, it's because God expected an animal sacrifice. No, that's not true. That's not true because there were all kinds of sacrifices in the Old Testament. They would bring wheat and they would bring first fruits and they would bring all kinds of offerings before God. God accepted all of those offerings. you got to look at two words in there. The first word being the word that was used for Abel's offering. It says, he brought of the firstlings of his flock. In other words... Abel brought the best. Abel brought the first thing that came out and said the first thing that comes out is God's. It's not mine. He gave of the firstlings of the flock. But when you go and look at Cain's offering in verse 3, it says what? That Cain brought of the fruit. Not the first fruits, but the fruit. In other words, Cain just brought to God whatever he wanted to give him. And God honored whose offering? He honored Abel's offering because Abel gave him the best. Cain gave him whatever he wanted. We've got to realize that when it comes to worshiping God, we don't just give God whatever. We give him the best. Now, I'm going to tell you, I know. You've been at work all week. You're tired. You're exhausted. You come into church, and you think to yourself, man, I I just want to sit here. I just want to be fed. I just want to grow. Well, let me be honest with you. You're only going to grow with what you put into it. You're only going to grow with what you're willing to give to the Lord. You're only going to grow as you give God your best. If you just give God whatever you want, guess what? God's not honored in that. God is honored when you give him the best. When you give him the best. You see, if we want to get back to the sacred, if we want to get back to seeing God's presence, then we got to get our hearts right, we got to get our lives right, and we got to give God the best. Man, when we do that, I'm telling you, revival will come. It will happen when we decide we really want it to show up. But as long as we just keep giving God the leftovers, and we just give God whatever we want to give Him, we cannot expect Him to show up. There's going to come a time where God's going to return. I look forward to it. He's going to come in the clouds. But you realize that He can still come down right now. Not in the clouds, but man, the Holy Spirit can fill this place and move and change lives if we'll let Him. Do you need to return to the sacred?